good to be back and good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, I want to thank you for praying for me these last couple of weeks while I was in India and bring you greetings from uh, the churches over there. And I was in a, a new church last Sunday that I'd never been in before. And we had such a great time together uh, around God's Word and got to meet a bunch of new pastors that I hadn't met before. Uh, and the pastors of the Calvary Baptist Foundation that we partner with over there uh, are just so thankful uh, for friends uh, who are still hanging with them. Uh, they have not seen any support or friendship for a really long time. And these third world countries, if we think we had it rough during the COVID time, they had it a hundred times as rough. It's just, I can't even explain to you how difficult things were uh, in these countries and continue to be difficult. And uh, so we had a wonderful time with them. And I, I just want to thank you for your prayers and thank you for those who give toward our Increasing India Fund uh, as we partner with those pastors. And I appreciate uh, Brother Tyler Smith starting our series last Sunday in Matthew 5. And our series is called The Reset Button, uh, God's Path Toward Reconciliation in Our Relationships. And he kind of uh, started off with this foundation message on what it means uh, for reconciliation to happen and uh, how uh, somebody's got to be willing to tear down the wall that's between us and uh, show some humility and bring the relationship back into form. Uh, today we're going to Romans chapter 4 and 5, and we're going to see the meaning of reconciliation. So we're uh, going backward a little bit, and we're going to talk about uh, the, our reconciliation with God, uh, because we have to be reconciled with God before we can understand what it means to be reconciled with other people. And uh, so as you turn there to Romans 4 and 5, uh, let me mention a couple of things for you to remember. Uh, Brother Scott mentioned a bunch of announcements at the beginning. Uh, along with those announcements, be praying for Pastor Andrew and Lauren Beck and their kids. They are headed this way from North Carolina in a couple of weeks, transitioning uh, to be on our staff. And Pastor Andrew will be our executive pastor. Part of his role will be leading our church music. And so you only have to put up with me for two more weeks, all right? And if that's not a cause for cheering from you, it is a big cause for cheering from me. Uh, so I'm excited for Pastor Andrew to be here. Uh, also, uh, if you have not taken all four of our Next Step classes, uh, we're pushing our next available date into September, but you can still sign up for those at surfchurch.org or at one of the kiosks in the lobby. Class 101 introduces you to the church, what we believe, why we believe it, and how we practice it. Class 201 deals with personal discipleship and the spiritual habits for growing in Christ. Uh, class 301 helps you discover your God-given shape for ministry. And Class 401 guides you towards sharing your faith, which is the life mission of every believer given to us by God. Once again, once again it's wonderful to have Pastor Julio and his family here uh, to visit today, and make sure you greet them after the service. All right, let's read now. We're in Romans 4, and we're going to start reading in verse number 18. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, 
According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, this is a a little bit deeper and more difficult passage than maybe we're usually going to cover on a Sunday morning with our family worship. We're going to do our best to keep uh, the cookies on the bottom shelf today and make it understandable for everybody who's here. This is such an important doctrinal passage. And, And we discovered last Sunday that the, the reset button for relationships is forgiveness and reconciliation, uh, restoring the quality of their relationship. Uh, we all have the responsibility to notice when there is distance in our relationships, whether the distance is caused by us or caused by somebody else. And reconciliation is a powerful reset button that God gives to us. I remember when I was a kid, uh, probably in maybe about fifth grade, they came out with a new video game called Intellivision. And uh, some of you may remember this. So this is back in the day when a, a, a cool video game uh, meant that you had this wand in your hand and a ball would bounce on a screen and then you would move this thing and it would bounce back, Okay. Yeah, that was the first Atari stuff. Pong was the name of it. But in like 1982, they came out with this thing called Intellivision. And Intellivision had this this console and this uh, that you had two players on, and it had this uh, little gadget that that had a circle on the bottom that kind of uses a steering wheel and these buttons on it. It was the coolest thing. I remember uh, I bowled 300. 
um, the Intellivision Bowling, and it was like the proudest moment of my life. And I told my parents, and they're like, yeah, there's probably going to be better, better things in your life. And, I, and then they came out with a, a new game, and it was called Burger Mania. Burger Mania. Does anybody ever remember playing Burger Mania? You guys remember this? He, he, this guy, you played Burger Mania? Oh, my word. We got to get together and talk about this. So, so Burger Mania was this game, and there, there's these enemies after you, and you had to keep going across the top bun of the burger and then across the tomato and across the lettuce and across the beef. And finally, you go across the bottom bun, and the whole burger stack would drop down, and you get this massive amount of points. And, of course, the bad guys, like the French fries, I think they were, were trying to stop you from doing the burgers. Well, it was a two-player game. And, and so uh, it was split screen, and you could both play at the same time. Incredible new technology back then. And uh, by the way, I have not played a video game since 1982. Um, so I know nothing about video games now. But, but my dad, uh, he really got into Burger Mania. And uh, it's the only time I've ever seen him play a video game his entire life. And so we would sit there and we'd play Burger Mania. Well, he really liked Burger Mania because he always beat me because I was 10 years old. Um, but then, somehow, my 10-year-old brain started kicking in with the controls, and I started to get pretty close to him. And then, I became a Burger Mania maniac, right? And I started winning in Burger Mania. And I'd get above him in the points, and the points would be rolling. And all of a sudden, he would reach down on the Intellivision board, the console, and hit this little red button called the reset button, in the middle of the game, right? What a parent. I mean, goodness gracious. He hits the, and then he would say, oops, I guess we have to start over, right? Now, we're talking about the path to reconciliation here, people. Uh, the reset button concept is given to us by God, and it is for all our relationships. And you know, the thing that resets our relationships is forgiveness. Uh, if we don't forgive each other, we can't have restoration. And, and there are sometimes you may think that a relationship is so messed up that it can never be fixed. And in fact, when I said that, it could be that there was a relationship that immediately went to your mind or your heart. A relationship with somebody that is just splintered so far that you have no idea how it's going to be healed. And I, I want to remind you today that God is the ultimate relationship fixer. And that he uh, alone can work miracles in reconciliation. And it starts with his path to fixing the relationship between himself and the fallen human race. In fact, understanding the path to peace between God and man is the foundation for all peaceful relationships. And as we go through this passage this morning, we're going to see the meaning of reconciliation according to God. And I'm sure you know that God's definitions are the only ones that count. And so let's begin with our first thought here, remove from relationship. Remove from relationship. And if you'd like to follow along in your notes there in your bulletin, they're also on the YouVersion app. 
and you can go along with us here in the message. Go back to chapter 4, and I want you to see verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You know, Jesus was delivered for everything that was against us, everything we'd ever done wrong. And it's important that we realize what it means to be an offender. Uh, James 2.10 says it so plainly. And this verse is profound. James 2.10 says this, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, that's important to understand, isn't it? Uh, you can try to keep the whole law, and if you mess up in one place, then you're an offender. If you've ever broken even one of God's boundaries, you're an offender. You're a sinner. Uh, the, the verse this morning, Ephesians 6, 1, right? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. If you've ever disobeyed your parent, then you are an offender. You're a sinner, you say, that's an offense against God. Yeah, that's an offense against God. Uh, have you ever coveted after what you don't have? That's a sin. Have you ever told a lie? You've broken God's law. And you see all the time in society, you know, this is one of the tenets of humanism, society tells us that all people are basically good, right? And you hear this all the time. And, it, and what happens is Christians even get sucked up into it. And you'll hear Christian people say, well, everybody's basically good. And uh, there's just a few bad apples. Well, maybe read Romans, <laughs> okay? Because Romans 3 says there is none good. No, not one. And if you're thinking, well, I'm the exception, uh, just raise your hand and we'll start pointing out your faults, okay? Uh, would anybody like to be, to be the one? We'll have your family members start first. We're just going to promote some real healthy reconciliation here in church today. There's none good. Hey, culture paints this picture that we are mistakers in need of correction. But God says we're sinners in need of a Savior. And we have all offended. The fact of our sinfulness is what separates us from God. And, and we know God desires that all people know him and love him. God so loved the world, he is not willing that any should perish. And yet, because of his holiness, our sin separates us from God. God cannot abide with sin. Isaiah 59, 2 says, For your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, their relationship with God changed. And yes, God promised a path toward reconciliation, but you notice he also removed them from the Garden of Eden. And you and I were born under that separation, under that condemnation. We were born in sin. David said in Psalm 51, I was shaped in iniquity, and sin, my mother, conceived me. He acknowledged that they had a sinful nature from the moment he was conceived. But he also acknowledged that he had made his own personal choices to break God's boundaries. And in the same chapter, he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me, 
Against thee and thee only have I said and done evil in thy sight. Last week we saw that before we can have reconciliation with another person, we have to admit there is a distance. And either person may be causing the distance. Both people may be causing the distance. But the distance has to be acknowledged before it can be fixed. And before we can have reconciliation with God, we have to admit that there is a distance between us. And the distance is caused by our sin. The distance is never God's fault. It's always ours. And deep down inside, we know that we need peace with God. We know that our hearts are distant from him. Deep inside, we all yearn for acceptance from God. Yeah, I was reading this story that Ernest Hemingway wrote, a short story. And it, the short story is called The Capital of the World. And it talks about the relationships between fathers and their sons. And I know some of you have a great relationship with your father. Thank God for that. Uh, some of you have kind of a distant or difficult relationship with your father. And, and this story revolves around a father and his teenage son, Paco. And so the story is set in Spain. And Paco was an extremely common name in Spain at that time. And, and so Paco desires to become a matador and escape his father's control, right? If it were set in America, it would be, you know, Paul or whoever and he wants to escape dad's control and authority, so he goes and joins the Marines, right? It's kind of like Paco. So Paco uh, runs away to the capital uh, in Madrid, and he's going to become a matador. And his father, desperate to reconcile with him, follows him to Madrid, goes down to the local newspaper, and puts an ad in the newspaper. And the ad in the newspaper says, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. And Hemingway wrote about it. The next day at noon in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos who showed up. They were all seeking forgiveness. The world is full of people in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I'm one of them. You're one of them. The model for such forgiveness is most profoundly found in Jesus Christ. And though all people have a yearning for acceptance from God, not all people understand that God's acceptance only comes on God's terms. And that's the second part that we need to talk about. And thank God for this, this second part, righteousness made available. Okay, so we read in verse 25, he was delivered for our offenses. And he was raised again for our justification. Jesus was delivered for our sins. He was raised again for our salvation. And God offers us a path to peace through the atonement Jesus delivered. Uh, go down to chapter, uh, chapter 5, and uh, this section, verse 8 through 11. And let's revisit this one. I, I want you to look at it. If you like to underline or highlight in your Bible, there's some things that you should definitely highlight here in this section. Verse 8, but God commendeth or gives his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And we find in this section, I love the, the powerful words in verse 8, Christ died for us. Uh, I, I love these, these words, the, the preposition for, when it's connected with us. Uh, it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he became sin for us. Uh, it says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? I, I love the promise from Psalm 56, 9. When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Isn't that a great promise? For God is for me. Uh, and when you get that one and you really internalize it and you say God is for me, Jesus died for me, his precious blood declares that I am righteous before God. I can never claim that on my own. But his righteousness has been imputed to me. Now let's talk about this word imputed. This is a tough word. I want you to go back to chapter 4. And look down to verse number 22. Okay, and we're going to find this word uh, a few different times in just three verses. Look what it says first, verse 22. Therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And, and so... Uh, to further understand this, I want you to go back up in chapter 4 now, and uh, let's, let's get the root of this word imputed. Let's figure out what does it mean uh, to have something imputed on our behalf. Look at verse number 3. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin." Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. And so God takes faith and turns it into righteousness. Now, let, let's go a little further with this. And we see this third part, reconciliation by faith. Reconciliation by faith. Like Abraham... We can only be made righteous before God by believing that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Jesus has provided the sufficient means for you to be made righteous. But you can only accept that righteousness by faith. It is the gift of eternal life. But like any other gift, you have to open it. You have to receive it. Uh, when I was 12 or 13, we, we got a new dog. And I'm pretty sure we named him Little Bit. Uh, as far as my recollection is, we named the, the dog Little Bit. 
And my memory's a little bit fuzzy, but I think that's what it was. Uh, and a little bit, uh, he was kind of a dachshund mix. And uh, I thought, you know, little bit should have his own house. And so one afternoon, I went out in the shed and, and grabbed some boards and all the spare parts that were could find, and I, I made little bit a house. And when I got done, <clears throat> I was pretty impressed. It sort of looked like a doghouse, kind of. Uh, it wasn't like a Lucas Quarter built doghouse or anything, but it was, you know, it was sort of a doghouse. And, and so I went inside, and I had the whole family to come out and look at this special creation in the backyard. Uh, well, one of my little sisters piped up. She came outside. Uh, you know, I've got four little sisters. They're all kind of annoying. And um, uh, so she said, what is that? What is that thing? Uh, duh, it's a doghouse. Hello? Have you never seen a doghouse before? And my dad, of course, loving father that he is, uh, he came out to the site and could not hold back laughter. And, and then a little bit, as if all the other stuff, you know, wasn't bad enough, little bit, the recipient of the fabulous gift uh, tucked his tail, turned, and ran the other way. He declined. He never once entered to the contraption, uh, most likely out of fear that it would collapse on top of him. And little bit did not want my gift. Okay? And when people refuse the gift that Jesus offers, they aren't refusing a fifth-rate contraption. Okay, they aren't refusing a holiday fruitcake. They're not refusing an ugly sweater. They're refusing life itself. They're refusing the best gift that's ever been offered. And I'm telling you, you don't want to make light of the gift of God. You don't want to disregard the gift of God. When people are under conviction, when they know in their hearts that reconciliation with God only th comes through Christ, and they decide to wait and put it off for another day, they're making light of God's gift. And when reconciliation is made available and you find out about it and you don't accept it, you are showing your true feeling about the relationship. You're thinking more highly of yourself than you should, and you're thinking less highly of the other person, in this case, God. And, and so reconciliation with God brings about an entire list of blessings into our lives. As we go into Romans 5, Paul shows us seven benefits of having a right relationship with God. We're just going to touch on them all briefly. I want you to see what they are because they're listed right here in the Scripture for us. These are the results of reconciliation. And first we see in verse number 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Okay, so first we have peace with God. Uh, long ago, a, a, a man sought the perfect picture of peace. And he couldn't find the picture that satisfied. There was no portrait that just cried out peace to him. And so he announced this contest. And the contest was to paint a masterpiece that portrays peace. Okay, so what would it look like? If you're painting a masterpiece that describes peace, a picture. And, and so the challenge uh, stirred the imagination of all these artists everywhere, and paintings started coming in from far and wide. And finally, the, the day of revelation arrived. They're going to unveil, unveil all the paintings. And, and the judges uncovered one peaceful scene after another, 
and the viewers oohed and awed and clapped and cheered, and then there were only two pictures left. And the judge pulled the cover from one, and this hush came across the crown, and the painting showed this mirror-smooth lake, and it reflected in the lake were these uh, lacy green birch trees, and uh, the soft blush of the evening sky was above them. There was a grassy shore and this flock of sheep that grazed undisturbed. And everybody thought, surely this has got to be the winner. And then the man who ultimately had had division for the contest, he uncovered the final painting. And the crowd gasped. They didn't ooh and ah, they gasped. Because they're like, could this possibly be peace? Uh, in the painting, there was this tumultuous waterfall that's coming down over this rocky precipice. And it, you could almost feel its cold, penetrating spray. And it, the sky was this stormy gray cloud threatening to explode at any time with lightning, wind, and rain. And in the midst of the thundering noise and bitter chill, there's this spindly tree that clung to the rocks at the edge of the falls. And it had one branch that reached out in front of the torrential waters of the waterfall as if it's foolishly seeking to experience its full power, it's reaching toward the waterfall. And in that branch, a little bird had built a nest in the elbow of the branch. And here's the bird, content and undisturbed in the stormy surroundings, resting on the nest on her eggs, with her eyes closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones. And as she is showing us peace in the turmoil. You know, there is no peace in this world around us. There's not. But we can have peace with God. And if you're counting on political news to give you peace, uh, you're going to be disappointed, right? Uh, if you watch 24-hour news, you are not a happy person, okay? Uh, if you are counting on the economy to give you peace, you'll never be satisfied. If you are thinking world peace is the ticket to personal peace, I have some very bad news for you. Uh, the Personnel Journal did this statistic a couple years ago. They said since the beginning of recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. Okay, in its study... Uh, the periodical discovered that of 3,530 years of recorded history, only 286 years saw peace. In, there were, in that time period, an excess of 8,000 peace treaties that were made and then broken. And the world cries peace when there is no peace. But peace with God is beyond human understanding. And it can carry you through every circumstance you can imagine and here we find it is a direct result of reconciliation with God. Now, the second result is access to true grace. Verse number two, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And access to God's grace is one of the great benefits of the Christian life. As a believer, you don't need any human mediator to speak to God. You can go boldly before the throne of grace at any time because Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. And sadly, there are billions of people who don't have that access to God. 
because they've never believed in the name of Jesus for salvation. And there are billions of people who are trying to get access to God through a priest or a temple or a religion or a chant. But here's another tragic discovery. Do you know that many of the people who have access to God's throne never use their access? They don't ever spend time with God in prayer. Uh, this is one of the great benefits we've been given. And if we don't use it, man, we're missing out. Now, the third one is the end of verse 2, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. When a Christian talks about hope, he's not talking about hope like other people talk about hope. He's not saying, I hope the Mariners make the playoffs, or I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, or I hope it's sunny today. Uh, those hopes are more of a wish, right? Especially the Cowboys one. Uh, the, the, the believer's hope is in something certain. Uh, the hope of glory is not a maybe or a probably. I love Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. That kind of hope is a direct result of reconciliation with God. Now, the fourth one is going to sound a little strange because you wouldn't normally think of it as a benefit. Look at verse number three. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience. Now, what kind of person in their right mind glories in tribulation? Only those who know God. Uh, the promise in Romans 8, 28 I'm sure you know it, and you've, you're committed to it. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Let me ask you a question. Do you glory in tribulations? Uh, that's a tough one, right? Do you glory in tribulations? The closer you get to God, the more you rest in him and set aside your worries and cares the easier it will be to glory in tribulations, in circumstances that you don't control. I had a pretty crazy week this past week. Uh, I left India last Sunday night at midnight. And I was supposed to get home uh, Wednesday because one of my flights uh, got totally canceled. And I knew it about it ahead of time. I, I had to spend 24 hours in Singapore. And uh, they would not let me go out of the airport. Uh, because of their rules. And so I was 24 hours in the Singapore airport. And it's a big airport, but it's an airport, right? And so I'm walking around, I'm trying to find places to rest, and what am I going to eat? And, and I'm just dead tired. I'm walking down this, uh, this hall that's in one of the upstairs pavilions, and I'm just looking for a place like out of the way where there's no people where I could just rest. Is there a lounge chair? Is there, you know, a floor? Is there anywhere? And so I walk down this hall, and I see people all bundled up on the floor, just sleeping. And I don't have anything to bundle up. I've got one tiny little carry-on. And so I walk all the way down to the end of this hall. And at the end of the hall, there's one chair, just like a normal kitchen-type chair. And on the chair, there's a folded-up blanket. And I'm like, what in the world? Why would there be a blanket right here? And all of a sudden, it's kind of like God said to me, you dummy, it's for you, <laughs> right? And I said, okay. So I took the blanket, 
And I laid down on the floor right there with the blanket and fell asleep. And I kept that blanket with me the whole 24 hours. I found a lounge chair and spent the night in the lounge chair. And when I left, I folded the blanket and left it for somebody else. And I got to thinking, you know, sometimes God gives you just what you need to make it through a tribulation. He gives you just what you need. And so I finally got to leave Singapore, and I flew into Australia. And right when I landed, I turned my phone on, and the first message I see is, your flight has been canceled. And they're like, well, what does this mean? So I start looking at it. My flight that was supposed to leave to come home has been canceled, and they booked me on a new one 36 hours later. And so I'm going to get to spend all this time hanging out in Australia, uh, which it turned out that I guess God wanted me to do, and I saw some of the city, and I'm home, and every, everything's fine. But, you know, tribulation works patience, and it, it's, it's interesting. I was in India for 98 hours. I added it up, and I was on my way home from India for 107 hours, right? That's how life is sometimes. Tribulation works patience. And evidently, that work is still being done in me, right? Maybe it's still being done in you. Uh, the fifth one is this, patience works experience. Experience is the proof that we really believe in God, is the path of faith on which we walk. And then we see this next one, and experience hope. Experience works hope. And this returns us to the topic of hope. Uh, it is this wonderful two-part promise. The Christian's hope is immediate upon believing in Jesus, and we get it by looking away from ourselves to the Lamb of God. But as we go through tribulations, we begin to have the Holy Spirit build patience into our lives. We start to experience a mature hope. And yes, we still see Jesus as our only hope, uh, still the Lamb of glory, but now we start to see the work of Jesus reflected in our own lives. And John discusses this difference in 1 John. He says, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And it, here's what's weird. Our feelings of hope catch up with the fact of hope that we receive at the moment of salvation. And then we get to this last benefit. Hope makes us not ashamed. Hope makes us not ashamed. A right sense of God's love leads us to live unashamed, unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of our hope, unashamed of our sufferings in Christ, and our reconciliation with God produces our sanctification with Christ. God provides the means for us to become more like Jesus every day. Now, not every Christian is taking advantage of the blessings given to us in Christ. Some self-proclaimed believers don't ever access the throne through prayer. They don't allow tribulation to work patience in their lives, and they live ashamed of Jesus and ashamed of the gospel. Many years ago, the uh, first church Amy and I worked in was outside of Dallas, Texas, in Garland, and uh, we, were, we had been there for a couple of years, and I was starting to have headaches and uh, couldn't see very good at night, and so she said, well, let's go get your eyes checked. And so we went down to the place and got my eyes checked. And sure enough, they said, yeah, you need glasses. And, and so they gave me glasses. 
And, uh, and so I wore those glasses, and uh, a couple years later, we moved to Idaho to start a church in the north end of Boise in 1998. And uh, I went uh, to get new glasses and get my eyes checked, and, and I re still remember the optometrist came in, and he said, I've got some good news and some bad news. Which would you like first? I'm like, well, give me the bad news. And he said, these glasses that you've been wearing, how long have you been wearing those? And I said, oh, a couple years. He said, I got the bad news for you. Those glasses you've been wearing, they have no prescription in them. <laughs> like, you did what? <laughs> yeah, they don't have any. You've been wearing just these fake glasses, right? You've been wearing these cosmetic glasses. They don't have any prescription in them. I'm like, well, that's, yeah, that stinks a little bit. And uh, you want to hear the good news? He, yeah. He said, now you'll be able to see. And so he gave me the new glasses. I'm like, okay, whatever. And I put the new glasses on. Wow. Like, for the first time, I could see. Like, everything was clear. It was beautiful. Life was good. And that bad news was totally overcome by the good news. You know, I think that there are a lot of people who are walking around, and they got the glasses, but the glasses have no prescription. They don't have any reconciliation with God. They've got a form of religion. They have the pretense of religion, but they don't have true salvation. And unfortunately, a lot of them go to churches just like this one. Some of them go every week. And they've got the official glasses, and so they think, man, we're doing good. Got the ticket to heaven. Everything's good. But they don't see anything. They never go to God in prayer. Testing never develops them. The trying of their faith is never happening. They're ashamed of who Jesus is. You know, folks, make sure you have the real thing. You're not going to get to heaven with a form of religion. You have to have Jesus Christ in your life. And Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Our faith challenge today kind of sums all this up. Next week, we go back to human relationships. And it says this, until we receive reconciliation through Christ, we can't offer it to others. If you want to be able to offer peace to the world around you, you've got to have peace on your own. And we need the reconciliation that only God provides, the peace with God that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we could come together on this Sunday and get back into your word. I pray that you would help us to meditate on the things that we've covered today all through the week and to be reminded of, of how powerful your grace is in our lives and how God gave his love to our, toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I pray that you'd guide us now uh, through this Sunday and through this week and help us to honor you with our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, thank you, folks, for being here. Pastor Bryce, I'm going to ask you uh, to take Pastor Julio and his family out in the lobby so that folks can meet them as we get ready to go out. Don't forget about all the announcements and things that are coming up. We've got the Labor Day breakfast, everybody, coming up.
uh, on Labor Day weekend, and it's at 9.30. There's no classes that day, that morning, because we want everybody to be able to fellowship together. And so let's do that, okay? God bless you, everybody. Have a great day.